2: Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe. I'm the
0: editor of the New Books Network, and be forewarned, there was a little problem with the host's audio in the following interview, but I hope that you enjoy it anyway. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand channel on the New Books Network. This afternoon we have Matthew Richardson. Matthew is an academic and a journalist. He's worked for four decades in those fields. He's presently a professor of communications at Deakin University. Before that, he has worked at RMIT, the University of Canberra, has been involved in news media with The Age and the Australian, Time Magazine Australia, and has also been involved in a few investigations into the state of journalism in
1: Australia. So, uh, and my name is B Haynes. Good afternoon, Matthew. Thank you for joining us. That's a pleasure, Pete. Happy to be here. Now, you've written this book published by UNSW Press called, well, you've edited it and written a fair bit of it, un mm-hmm. Disrupted Lives in Journalism. First of all, could you explain the background to this book, how it came about and what its purpose is? Sure. Okay, well, um, as you as you kind of said in your introduction there, I've I've edited and written part of it. I've my co-editor is Andrew Dodd, who's also an academic uh, and a former journalist, and we were we are both members of a uh, an academic research team called the New Beats Team, headed up by uh, our colleague Laurie Zion out at La Trobe Uni. And basically, this this um, team was set up, you know, eight or nine years ago, when the first of these Big rounds of job losses started happening in the uh, in the mainstream media, and you know we can talk about the detail of that. But it was 2012, and it was at what was then known as Fairfax Media and News Limited, and Laurie and myself and Andrew and a couple of other colleagues, um, Penny O'Donnell and Tim Marjorie Banks and Merrin Sherwood, all kind of had the same idea at the same time, which was. This is a kind of seismic seismic moment in the in the media industry in this country, and we ought to kind of investigate what's going on, and and we started off with the idea that, you know, uh, okay, there were there were around about um, you know fifteen percent of the kind of total journalistic workforce was laid off in the space of less than a year back then, uh, and we thought that they. A lot of these people might go and start kind of trying to reinvent journalism or, or, you know, go and uh, make a startup media organization or something like that, because that was kind of what was in the air at the time. And there's no doubt that some people did that and some of them were successful in doing that. Uh, but, uh, you know, what actually sort of happened over the next few years was that there were more rounds of redundancies. Um, more you know that the media kind of got or the big media companies got winnowed and they um, uh, they stopped doing or sorry they kept doing annual kind of rounds of redundancies until about 2017 and then sort of stopped and have gradually started on an upswing since then for reasons that we can kind of talk about in a bit more detail but but the uh, the kind of notion of reinventing journalism and so on didn't hasn't really come about in a in a major or a systemic way uh, what's happened is that the mainstream or what is tends to be called these days the legacy media um, got smaller and more fragmented and as you have seen the you know social media uh, through whether through your Facebook feed or other other means Instagram or whatever um, that is the main mechanism now by which a lot of people, gain access to news and ideas and information and so on and um, a lot of it's still coming from those big media sites but um, a lot of it isn't (laughs) and there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, uh, what's the word tonic in with the gin if you like if you know what I mean there's a lot of all sorts of weird stuff going out there and and we're seeing the results of that in in recent years with you know whether whether it's looking at the um, elections in the U.S. or the uh, the kind of uh, response, that, that the crazy conspiracy theories about cures for uh, the the global pandemic, or disbelief that there's a global pandemic, or the idea that the world is run by a bunch of pedophiles in a pizza house back in you know the United States somewhere. These kinds of things, which have always been there, have just been turbocharged into the into the system by social media and and the legacy media is. Is not as central or as powerful as it used to be.
0: Can I ask you this? There's in the in your answer just then, or in yours comment just then, you've mentioned the concept of media, people who work in the media, and the concept of journalism. And I imagine there's a bright line between those two things because a journalist isn't just someone who works in the media. It's actually it's actually a thing called a journalist. What is a journalist?
1: Sure. Okay. Um, you're right. There's what you might call an, a, a way to distinguish is between talking about the practice of journalism and the business of the media. So the media, you know, whether it's Nine or Fairfax or News or, you know, West Australian or whatever, they are in the business of their, their commercial enterprises. They need to make money and have revenue coming in. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, journalism... Is something that you do, that you practice. You may do it in a newspaper run by, by, um, you know, uh, the Nine Organization or by News Limited or or News Corporation Australia, as they're now known. Or you might do that in a small startup. You might do that at crikey.com.au. You know, there is an argument to say that if you are doing a podcast in the way that you are doing right now, you are doing journalistic work. That is, you're interviewing your, uh, you know, your purpose is to discuss a new thing. In this case, a book for a broader audience, and so on. that's that's a, a reasonable definition of what journalism is. And I, I prefer to think of it as um, what you do, uh, because if you if you just think of who is a journalist and what, uh, and then. You know, you might not you Bede, might not be included in that, but for, for my book, you are doing you are doing journalistic work, so I prefer to think of it as what you are doing, even though you're not working at you know the Herald Sun or whatever.
0: Yes. Your book also moves into a division. We'll talk about this in some more detail later. I think, but you mentioned already the concept of legacy legacy media versus new media, and I take it from writing this book, you think there's something to worry about or something that needs to be not- is noteworthy about this change and it's not necessarily a good thing. That's the vibe I got from the book. So how would you distinguish a change between what's happening now in the media with job losses and this, just a different reorganisation of the business compared to something, say, another societal change where 30 years ago there were local Butchers, but now you buy your, your meat mostly from a supermarket. But that's our tax consolidation as well. Is is
1: the consolidation in journalism something we should be concerned about? Okay, um, I think that the uh, well, you've the most reliable estimates are that in the decade to the end of two thousand and twenty, between four and five thousand people who describe themselves as journalists uh, have have taken voluntary uh, redundancies. Okay. Now, some of them have gone into the media elsewhere, but the great majority haven't. And, um, I, I, would liken that to, um, uh, I don't know what, what sport you follow if indeed you are a football fan, but if you were a, a, a following a football team that has 22 people playing, you know, uh, and you took out sort of six or seven of them, what a kind of, what effect do you think that would have on the football team? You know, um, it's going to have some kind of material effect. And when you uh, when so when you think about some of the people who are no longer in the industry who used to be um, and the volume of the number of people who are no longer in the broad media industry that used to be, I do think that that, that has had an impact um, and the book kind of shows that and the people who are interviewed for it are concerned about it as well. They're concerned about... Um, uh, less detailed reporting on on matters of public interest, whether it might be uh, something which is a bit, you know, chewy like the Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty or something like that, which is not going to be for everyone, but it's actually an important kind of uh, treaty among countries and to understand its impact on the economy and so on. You need, you know, experienced journalists who follow that kind of thing in detail to kind of discuss it and unpack it and work out what it's all about and so on. Um, so there's, there's some concern there from the people who are interviewed for the book about that, uh, at the same time, and I don't want to sound kind of like a Pollyanna on this, but at the same, at same time, the internet has enabled, um, the doing of journalism in all sorts of ways that just was simply not possible 20, 30 years ago. Like what we're doing right now was not possible, you know, 30 years ago and, um, you can gather so much information so quickly via online sources now uh, which quickens your job so there is an argument to say you don't need as many people you know that that, you know um, so so there's that and there's there's you know there's all sorts of information that is available online now that never used to be like you never you could never find in the past unless you happen to be working in a Law, you know, in a law firm, uh, you couldn't find judgments of the courts. They were hard to get. Now you you can. You can read them yourself. You can critique them if that's what you want to do. That's a net benefit to society in terms of the dissemination of information and, and discussion of it. So I'm not for a moment saying that everything is, or, and nor is the book saying that things have gone downhill, alt only. But um, there is something to be uh, uh, concerned about. And and that that is to do with what I think I was talking about before, which is the the um, uh, the the diminution of legacy media in terms of size and scale, and and within the broad media ecosystem where there are so many other th- other things, whether it's through social media, whether it's um, misinformation sites or or indeed disinformation sites, which are deliberately spreading uh, you know bad quality information. Um, Uh, it's not not an either or, it's a both. There are some good things and there are some bad things, but um, you'd have to say that if you're looking at some of the trends in the world at the moment, you would be alarmed by, you know, if you think to yourself um, a decade ago, would we have envisaged uh, the riots at the Capitol on the 6th of January at the beginning of the year? It's pretty hard to to envisage that. Um, Would we have envisaged some of the responses to a global pandemic? especially when you compare it to the way in which people responded to the Spanish flu a century ago. Um, you know, people who who, openly do not believe that the the global pandemic is happening and will do almost anything up to and including dying rather than admit the fact that it exists and rather than go and get themselves vaccinated. That that strikes me as a, a very odd place that, that we're in at the moment and the the role of the kind of broad media ecosystem in that is is cert- I don't know exactly what it is, but I, I think there's something there.
0: Yes, and the legacy media. It seems. What are your thoughts on this? The legacy media. So we have an example you just you've just given, for example, about the sixth of January attacks in, in or event in Washington, and also misinformation about the pandemic. That would exist amongst the own user networks on things like Facebook. But I don't – I'm not part of that, but I know all about it through the legacy media essentially. So it's almost as though they, they you can't have
1: one without the other. They both – which probably – have to, you probably out probably the Facebook bit. But if you've got the Facebook bit, it seems to ride on the back of the legacy media so everyone knows about it. Like, yeah, no, that's true. Um, uh the fact that there are sort of, well, the fact that the riots on the uh, happened on the, at the Capitol in Washington on the 6th of January, we know about that. At, well, if let's, let's take sorry, let me go back a step and take what you're suggesting if it was right. That is, if there was no legacy media, how would we know about that event? I mean, there would be certainly a lot of people who were holding you know, using their own mobile phones to shoot footage of that event, Um, and that would have gone out and that would have gone to all of their followers and and gradually it might have trickled out. But what I think you're getting at is that there is a kind of infrastructure of the legacy media which both, well, perform some uh, functions of verifying that information, of curating it, of organising it into a form that is more readily digestible than a kind of, You know, three-hour feed on someone's phone, just their phone running non-stop up at the Capitol, Um, and then there's then there's other, you know, equally if not more important tasks of asking questions about that and putting the event in context, and 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 then going to political leaders or other leaders in the community and saying what 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 do you think about this, you know, etc. etc. So there's a kind of it's there are both things operating at once, but I think you're right that if the if the media infrastructure wasn't there, it, you can I can only imagine it would be even more chaotic and less um, uh, what's not only less organised but less less bound by a set of principles to do with ideas about both sharing information but also civic discourse and questioning and so on and so on.
0: Yes. Now, question about your book itself. The book had is set out, it's said to be edited by Andrew Dodd and yourself, although you do also seem to do a lot of writing in the, not editing is is of course part of your role, but you also have essays and things like
1: that. The book book also has a lot of sort of interviews that have been written up in certain ways and a lot of, a lot of people have put this, have contributed to this book. How did it come together? Okay, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that because, um, okay, I think I mentioned earlier it came out of the academic research group, the New Beats team. So when we've done, we're doing a number of things: academic articles and so on and so on. That's kind of what you do when you get a research grant. You um, helps you do all of that. What we as a group had in mind uh, as one of the things that we would do would be to um, to tell the stories of the journalists who'd taken voluntary redundancies. Okay, now our, our research partner in that part of the enterprise was the National Library of Australia. Um, they, they have an oral history collection. It's been there for a number of decades now, in interviewing anyone and everyone around the country. It might be a stockman, it might be a nurse, it might be prime minister, anyone. You know, It's a fantastic national resource that we have up there. and And from their point of view, journalists are a group that they have not had too many of in their collection and and we as a research team could gain access to the journalists so that was a useful partnership um so what we did was we chose about 60 of the many people who'd who'd taken redundancy um you know we wanted to make sure there were uh, equal numbers of men and women We wanted to make sure that there were people who'd worked in city media and country media and regional media, in print and radio and TV and online and, you know, over in the West here in Melbourne, which is where I am up in Queensland and all around the country and so on. So sort of made sure we covered all of those bases to make it a truly representative um, uh, project. And then we, over the past five years, we did these, what, the library calls "whole of life" interviews, where you know um, you sit down and you literally do—you walk through the person's life. And you know, where did you? Where, where were you born? Where did you grow up? How did you get into journalism? Um, why did you get into journalism? Um, who were your early mentors? What were some of the big stories you worked on? What were some of the difficulties that you encountered working as a journalist? What were some of the regrets that you might have had? Um, and then all of that kind of life of a journalist, career of a journalist material. Then we got to the point where, um, you know, we needed to cover off, well, okay, so you're going along in your career and then things happen to the media. You know, the internet arrives, it, it, it destroys the business model that had been in place for decades and decades. And the companies, the big media companies in, were grappling with how to respond to that business model problem they had, and um, and one of the ways they responded, not the only way, but one of the ways was to you know do a lot of voluntary um, redundancies because um, you know the it is still the case that uh, the workforce makes up a major part of your overall costs, uh, so that that's what they did. We went through that particular process as in in the book, you know. Um, where were you at that time? Um, how did you greet that news? Were you told in a way that was kind of, uh, you know, if you like, um, respectful and collegial or were you kind of beaten over the head with it? And what was the experience like? Because some of these people, in in well, many of them really, were people who'd been in the industry for, you know, two or three or even four decades. And so, um, and they'd come into the industry at a time when, to be a journalist you might not have been you might not have become as wealthy as a doctor or as a lawyer or something but you had a kind of a certain social cachet by dint of the fact that you work either you worked either at a big city newspaper or that you were in a you're in a country town and you had that local connection with your local community or you were on the telly and you were a well-known face and so on and so on um so you for a lot of these people they're, they're personal and professional identities were intertwined. Um, and to leave that, even if it was voluntary, was hard, was a wrench. And so what did they, how did you experience that? What did you do next? You know, um, did you kind of just retire? Did you try and start up something? Did you go elsewhere in the media? What did you do and how did that go? Um, so that was that was the kind, that's the sort of trajectory of the book. It starts with... Um, you know where do journalists come from? I think is the title of the you know the first chapter, and it ends up with uh, where are we now? And in fact, it actually ends up with the the riots on the Capitol in January six because we were just particularly struck by by that event, which is a remarkable historical event. And what did it say broadly about the world? You know, um, uh, what did it say about the world that that more people turned out in that election over in the United States than in any other? And if it alarmed some people that 74 million people voted for Donald Trump, you know, more than who had voted for him in the previous uh, presidential election, about 81 million, I think, voted for, for Joe Biden. And we concluded that at least part of the reason for that huge outpouring of kind of, if you like, civic engagement over in the US was because of the role of the news media in, in telling people and informing them about what was going on in their country. Now, Australia is not America, but, you know, it casts a large shadow and a lot of the issues that are happening over there have also been happening in here, both politically and in our media system. Mm. Um,
0: That's very interesting. The part of what you, in your answer then, you've spoken about people who have worked for long periods of time in the media and have, taken voluntary redundancies, lost their jobs, some people, all sorts of things. And there's an essay, one of the earlier essays is by an academic professor, now Laurie Zion, who was a well-known journalist here in Australia. Yes. And his, that, that particular piece, I think it, 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 to me at least, it was a really good introduction to the book because it explained a few things I'd like you to comment on. First of all,
2: there were some memories in the book about being at home and hearing having radios on the background with news services on, and there were kids' TV shows that like, even, I remember watching it at school. We had to watch it every Tuesday or Wednesday morning behind the news, which was an ABC television thing for kids, teaching them about the news. There's reference for newspapers calling it the Daily Miracle that it even gets produced, mm. um, and 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 then you have the, I think the next chapter is about or one of the later ones about the lost culture of the newsroom and how. You get into a newsroom or into a newspaper and it has its own culture, good and bad. You talk about that there's sexism and there's, 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 thing,
0: there's all sorts of things happening, but there's also just hard work and people who are committed to things. Is that, um, was that transition from being brought up in a home where you heard news, you saw newspapers on tables, and then there was a culture you could then go into as a profession? Has that been the loss? How do, how do children
1: now grow up and transition into becoming journalists? How would that happen? Yeah, that that is a really good question. And to be honest, I don't know the answer uh, because, um, well, it's a long time since I've been a child. Also, it's a long time since my children have been children. Um, And the people who we were speaking to were ranged in age from sort of about 40 to 65, you know. So I guess one of the things you would, be asking now, as in with young, you know, teenagers getting to that stage in their schooling where they're thinking about what they're going to do, um, would they be thinking about a career in journalism? And the evidence is that uh, a lot of them still do. Uh, equally, there are, you know, I mean, we have a course, for example, at, at Deakin, where I am um, in digital media, which it's it's all under the communications um uh, area, But it's digital media as distinct from journalism. And the enrollments in that are pretty strong. Uh, because people have been different. I think one of the things that's captured their imagination now is the, the idea that, you know, with the mobile phone, you, you can create your own media, you know, that was not the case for all of those people who we interviewed in their childhoods, you know, it, it, this thing was on their table, uh, you know, the newspaper, or this thing was on the television set in the corner of the lounge room. Now the thing is the mobile phone and you can, as as we are doing right now, you can record interviews, you can go out and take pictures of newsworthy events, you can talk to people, you can immediately upload it and, and share it with anyone around the world. Um, so I... Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you I know because I don't know the answer to that, but I think it's a really good question and I'm I'm wondering what it is that, that will draw people into these sorts of roles, um, which in my view are, remain incredibly important. There's no doubt that they remain important. Uh, are they as central as they were? I think not, um, but that doesn't mean they're still not important and they're still not um an awful lot of fun as well, you know. They, you know, journalism is a is. I mean, I, I would always stress its importance, but it's it's a lot of fun going out and finding out what's going on, and interviewing people, and talking to them, and you know, going to all sorts of different places. I know we're all COVID constrained at the moment, so we can't do that. But that is, so it's not just false nostalgia that I feel this. It's it is one of the things that is terrific about journalism: just going out and talking to people and finding out what's going on. Yes.
0: I imagine it would be. Mm. Next
1: chapter, I wanted to ask your comment on is chapter eight. It's called "Errors and Regrets," and you yeah. wrote that one. Indeed, yep. Um, one of, one of the things I took away from that chapter was the, the sort of a fear I and mean, inbuilt fear
2: in a journalist, a journalist that when the when the story comes out, you do not want to see a mistake in it. It's mm. almost like a, a, a keep you up at night sort of thing sometimes. Hmm. Mm. Um, why is why would uh, the chapter errors and regrets
1: warrant its own chapter rather than saying, how oh, okay, people make mistakes, but it seems to be a much bigger thing to journalists. Yeah, that's true. Um, well let me let me just let me just quote the very beginning of it because um, mm-hmm. it's not my line, it's somebody else's. Uh, but there's an adage that dates back to the nineteenth century that doctors bury their mistakes, lawyers hang theirs. Mm-hmm. And but journalists print them on the front page of the newspaper or put them onto the evening bulletin. Um, It's, it's a. I mean, that's obviously a a kind of a cynical line. It's a, it's a great line. But um, the thing about the thing about journalism in this context is that when you make an error, you make it in public, Um, and you, you, you know. Okay, so you might be look, you might look stupid. Okay, that's one thing. That's not much fun to look stupid, but more to the point, or more. Weightily, you can be sued if you've got something significantly wrong, and 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 defamed someone, or you know, sully their reputation, um, and that can cost both. Uh, well, it can cost your your employer a lot of money, um, or indeed, if you've made an error, like for example, um, you've reported something. Once once a, once a person has been charged with a with a, a crime. And bef- between that moment and the moment at which they uh, the matter is heard in court, the matter is sub judice, and you can't write anything or broadcast anything about that matter because it could prejudice the the uh, the 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 proceeding. So you're not allowed to do that. If you make that kind of mistake, um, as a young reporter did a few years ago here in Melbourne, um, you will not only get your your bum kicked by the the judge in the case in the particular case, which the judge did very publicly uh you'll get your bum kicked by your own news organization and you know for most people if you make errors um you don't last long in the media and i i can imagine some people thinking that that you know almost guffawing at that idea because there are you know so many errors happen on a daily basis and 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 it appears often from the outside that journalists don't couldn't give a you know a rats if they if they uh, made a mistake but I know from being a journalist and I know from other journalists that it's, it's seared into your soul that you m- must not make mistakes and it hurts when you do. Uh, and so, so, so that's, there's that, uh, those two reasons I've already mentioned to you. But the, th- the third one is that you are often writing about or broadcasting about events that are contested or um, you know, they carry a great deal of kind of weight for the people involved, whether it's a legal case or a, polit- a political matter, or or indeed um, you know it might be to do with a sporting club or whatever. Uh, and so, so if so if you get something wrong in that context, it carries more weight than simply um, you know you forgot how many legs of a chair there were and you got that wrong. Uh, And you also get – you and your news organisation get taken to task if you make an error. And so um, often – to give you a sharp example, the – let's say it's a piece of investigative journalism where you're not simply reporting, um, you know, today's unemployment figures, but you're reporting uh, and and, and asserting that someone has done something that's either corrupt or whatever – if you get one fact wrong in that, the whole thing can be unpicked like a like a bad piece of knitting. Even though you you, you might still have the the heart of it right, but it's very easy for it to be picked off. And so journalists kind of um, develop this this kind of rhinoceros like hide to never admitting they make an error, even though they're in a business which, by its very nature, you know, it's fast. It's you know. Um, and it's contested and you're all, almost always dealing with stuff you don't know a lot about. That is, that's the news. It's the new stuff. It's not the let's go back and have a look at Charles the First and what was said about him. Um, it's new. So you are in a, in a perilous environment and the stakes are high and so um, there are always going to be mistakes made but it's, it's hard to admit them for those kinds of reasons because you're often in a kind of an arm wrestle with whoever whoever it is that you're writing about or broadcasting about. Yes. I've got two more questions about errors. The first one is, of my note here, i called it an institutional error,
0: but that's probably not correct. It's almost like a cliche. So in Sydney, there's a notorious family, the OB family there. They're in trouble for political sort of quasi-corruption or real corruption or all sorts of things. And... You're a, it seems to me, if you're a journalist, you just have to mention that name, and all the work is done. The character's built, it's just the bad person. You don't actually have to do any. It's almost like you can't make an error. Everyone's just going to take that as true. Um, I want to ask what, how that actually affects the quality of journalism, and secondly, how on earth will the journalist change that if they thought this is actually incorrect?
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, good question. Okay, so taking the first one, um, we we only really know well we only have this view about Eddie Obeid as a result of a lot of investigative journalism, particularly by Kate McCliment at the Sydney Morning Herald, but also um, by dint of the investigative work that the that ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption, did um, on on his various. Uh, uh, business affairs and land dealings and so on. Uh, so to me, uh, okay, so to me that's that's on that's on a pretty solid foundation. And if you if you just said Eddie Obeid is this or that, um, he would be the first one to sue you if it wasn't on that pretty solid foundation. But I think you're you're not kind of so much getting at that. You're I think you're getting at the how how. Um, uh, certain people get, if you like, there's a general taint over their reputation, um, and how how easy or how so how difficult is it to unsmear that person once once you've had that smear? And I I, I think that is very difficult. Um, uh, you know what? There, there's the famous line from Mark Twain about how the you know the rumor is galloping halfway around the world while truth is still trying to put yes. your shoes on in bed. You know. Um, I do, and that that in you know, that kind of Mark Twain line from the nineteenth century has been, you know, again turbocharged in the age of social media. Um, I, I I don't know how what 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 is curious to me as to how deeply held or not deeply held people's views are about. Let's not use Eddie Obed, but let's use Person X, who's regarded as a you know some kind of shifty character. Um, if if someone actually met person X in at a party or at a wherever, I suspect often they would give them a reasonable hearing. I, they'd sort of say, Oh, I knew person X, you know, that everybody says is this, that, and the other. And if person X presented themselves and had a discussion with them, I don't know that, I guess I'm saying, I don't know that those views are really deeply held. I think they're kind of, Oh, I think so. And so, Oh, yeah, isn't he the person or isn't she the person who did this or that? And they're not deeply held. Um, but probably easy for me to say in my circumstance. But what was the second thing you said? Because there was another point. Another point to your question. Yeah, well, I guess it's, it's. I suppose another way of looking at it is because you're right. OB uh, it has investigative reporting behind it. There's just almost a cliche. Someone can just become it's just the the first the incident yeah. when the. Delta variant came out, there was this story of some bloke who picked up someone at an airport and knocked off at a party. The limousine driver, yeah. For a while, he was the guy we just all hated for a couple of weeks. Then there was the guy who apparently, well, I don't know, punched a horse at a protest. (laughs) The most most hated man. He would have been been a hundred years ago, but but now it's just forgotten. It's It's almost like you just get this instant ability just to create this image of someone immediately. And I don't know if it's Journalists working for the ABC or Channel 9 to
0: actually portray that person in any other way. Yeah. You almost, almost
1: couldn't do it. Yeah. It, you, look, I think that's a fair point. It's, And yet they're kind of, as you say, f- almost forgotten almost as quickly as, as they are, you know, as they become a notorious figure. Like I'll, I'll give you another example and I'll be interested if you can remember this, uh, one of these micro... Um, uh, scandals. There was a there was a chap whose name I won't mention, partly because I can't remember it, but I won't mention it anyway. Who was alleged to have, or sorry, he was filmed on his morning jog, needing to stop and you know take a crap by the side of the road, you know, and he got known as the poo jogger, you know. Um, and I don't know if you remember it, but it's exactly well. That's kind of partly my point. But it, at the time, if if you or I had been this person. Um, we would have felt like the walls were falling on top of us, you know, because he was subjected to so many jokes and memes and kind of, um, you know, tut tutting and finger pointing and all the rest of it. And uh and yet, you know, if you bumped into him in the street now, a you probably wouldn't recognise him, and b you you I don't know that you'd really you'd pro- feel deeply about it. It would be more you might feel a little bit of sympathy for him, I imagine, unless. He happened to be on another jog and doing the same thing at the same time.
0: That's <laughs> yeah, interesting.
2: The next question, last question about errors. And regrets. Sure. Um, how it, do you think the role of a press
0: conference that you mentioned, you do talk about press conference and public relations and things in your, in your in this very chapter. Is, is that a way of of, of the... Does the subject of the news, the person, the, the politician, for example, trying to control the story? And is that, does it become an easy
1: way for news journalists who might be busy and they might be less often now to actually get the story? Uh, look, uh, press conferences or media conferences have been around for a long time um, and they're, they're a convenient way for a newsmaker, a politician, say, or, or um, you know, someone else uh a business leader, a trade union leader or whatever, to speak to a, the whole journalistic kind of community um, quickly and in one go rather than give 20 interviews. So that's why they were invented. Uh, and, and they're efficient as far as they go. Um, there's certainly been some commentary about them in, in recent times because of the, 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 daily, the daily press conference that goes on, whether it's in New South Wales or in Victoria uh, in particular, Um, for overseas listeners, um, we, we've been having these because we've been locked down in the case of Victoria, uh, in the South of Australia for, you know, I think at at the time we are speaking today for longer than any other city in the, um, in the world and New South Wales and Sydney for, um, uh, for less time, but uh, politicians and chief medical officers use these as a way of talking to. Um, the broad community and via the journalists what what a lot of people who watch these press conferences every day are noticing um which they normally would never they'd never watch a press conference they they would just get the the kind of highlights on the evening news or in the paper the next day uh is is that uh, you know they're noticing how repetitive they are how how much they think the journalists are kind of mugging for the cameras and so on Um, it's a bit I'd, I'd put it down to a little bit like that 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 kind of line from Otto Bismarck that, you know, laws are like sausages. They're, you know, you don't really want to see them being made, um, and you don't really want to see journalism being made in this context. It's uh, it's pretty um, unedifying a lot of the time. Um, uh, so no, they're not they're not new. They've been around for a while. We just are noticing them more at the moment because of of COVID nineteen. I think. Okay. <laughs> Chapters nine and ten. Question about them. They seem to work together. They deal with um, chapter nine was you Sherwood and yourself mm. wrote that one, and chapter ten is by a person called Brad Fuller. Yes, they, they deal with
0: um, the dramatic aspects of being a journalist, knocking on the door. What's it called? Knocking on grass or something? Yeah. A sort of line they have. Then work life imbalance yeah. and what these said and I like your comment on this is that when you are a journalist it's almost vocational it's just like it's it is. it just seems to be the your life if you're a news journalist it, it's all consuming all controlling and you've just got to become desensitised and just suck it up and just roll with it and meet deadlines and I imagine some go to war zones to, to get families
1: and things help how, how do how What's the character of a journalist that you have to be like to deal with all that? Yeah. Okay. Well, to deal with all of that, um, particularly some of those sharper things that you're talking about, you need a fair amount of resilience. Um, and some people, you know, clearly some people are more resilient than others. And so, what tends to happen is that the sort of person who, who who's dead keen to be in a war zone and, and covering a war ends up being the sort of person who actually gets chosen. And if that's not really your forte or what you, you know, think you could do, you tend to end up in another part of the news organisation doing other work. um You know, so, so there's a kind of element of self a natural self-selection that goes on. That said, there is also, um uh, you know, and this has been a subject of a couple of, court cases here in victoria in recent years uh, where where journalists and photographers have sued their news organizations on the grounds that they argued they were negligent for not uh, taking proper care of them in in, in, and and so them suffering occupational post-traumatic stress disorder okay one case was unsuccessful the second case was successful and the news organization um, needed to pay quite a lot of money and damages to that particular journalist. So um, the stakes the stakes are, are high and so I'd say a couple of things about that The, the, the first is that it, it's entirely possible that anyone and everyone in a newsroom will will cover difficult events, whether it's a, a car collision, whether it's needing to ring someone who, who's lost a loved one in a, you know, in a car collision or something of that kind or a bushfire. Um, you know, I'll give you one example where a reporter at The Age, which is the last newspaper I worked at, this is during the time of the Black Saturday bushfires here in Victoria, where which were the worst um, bushfires in terms of loss of life in Victoria in its history, and, um, all of the regular reporters go out, and, and we're covering all sorts of parts of that those series of fires. Uh, and after a few days, you know, you kind of rotate them out and bring in more people. One of the people who was sent out early on uh, was a was a journalist who whose normal round, if you like, was covering the arts. They were they were an arts and and they'd been an arts reporter for the best part of a decade. You know, covering the opera and new films and new this and new that very good journalist. This is Gabriela Koslovich, very good journalist, but big, big story like that happens. It's all, all hands to the pump. So you, you know, so you, out you go. And um, so if you, if you're, if you're not, so, so, so that's the first thing that it's quite common, whether on a city news organization and particularly out in the bush where you kind of have to cover anything and everything that you will cover difficult, traumatic events, because, Whatever else is happening in the world, sadly, um, you know, fires, floods, death, you know, sexual assault, um, et cetera, et cetera. These things just keep happening and they need need to be reported. So um, what, what the court cases that have been going on have been about is to, in a way, to highlight the fact that media organisations have been poor at providing, you know, pro- proper support before, during and after these kind of events happen. So preparing journalists who, who, who need to cover events, supporting them while they're out there and then checking in with them afterwards to see if, you know, the, if they're uh, coping, whether they need a couple of days off before they come back, whether they need to debrief with someone, whatever. It, it's, it is true and, and it is an area that I've actually done some academic work on uh that, that that news organizations, not simply the one that was sued, which was in fact the Age newspaper, but um others, have not done this particularly well. Uh there is an awareness of the need to do it, and that's been kind of crystallized by that that judgment in that court case. But at the same time that the, the media is not earning as much money as it used to in terms of profits and so it's it's leaner and so there is a problem, there is a real problem there. Uh, and there are fewer older journalists around who tended to be the ones who would often provide that kind of you know, informal mentoring in a newsroom, just you know, help someone take them aside and say, have you, you know, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Can you, do you wanna have a chat about that story you just covered, which you know, was particularly difficult or whatever? There's less of that. Um, and so, yeah, that is a, that is a, a genuine problem. And the other chapter that you mentioned um, written by Brad Buller, and and Brad Buller, I should say, was one of the people who worked on the project. Um, He did a lot of work particularly on this book, but he also did some work on the overall New Beats project uh, but played quite a significant role in pulling together the book and some of the material you mentioned a bit earlier, like there's a, there's a, uh, a chronology of all of the different kind of job losses at the back. You know, Brad did a lot of work on that, and so on. So, he, so what he wanted to do also was to write one of the chapters, which he did, which is this notion that you were referring to earlier—that you know, um, you're never quite off duty as a journalist. And so, if if something happens, um, then bang, you just you have to go and start covering it. We well, you know you don't have to, but most journalists will choose to go out and start covering it. And there's few journalists that I know who haven't either had a. a, a a summer holiday interrupted by needing to cover a bushfire or um or, or whatever it might be uh or something that's happened in their local area and they start they start doing their reporting etc it's just um it's kind of in the culture of news it's what it's what's expected of you to do um, interesting. Yeah, but um, the other part of it is the effect it has on family life um right. which is what you were kind of i think alluding to and and it, and it is significant like there's Historically, lots of, you know, broken marriages, lots of alcoholism in the industry, um, less of that these days, uh, as in less alcoholism, but still pretty heavy toll. Um, I don't imagine it's much different to sort of, I don't know, some big city law firms, which seem to be pretty pretty um, brutal places to work as well.
0: Yeah, no, there's some. Um, yeah, yeah, you're not alone there in that field, but yeah, no.
1: Or indeed, a, a medicine. Medicine. Imagine if you were working in the yeah. hospital system at the moment. Yeah, be terrible. Yeah, um, you have to finish up pretty soon. As well, sure. I means going to miss out on a few questions, but that's all right. I'll go to the one I want to ask about next. It was the chapter called "Chasing Clicks"? Chapter eleven. I think that was um by Maren Sherwood and Andrew Dodd. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, what I wanted to ask here goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Is the, in Sydney, I'm in Sydney or in Melbourne, there's the Age, the Fairfax Press, and there's the Sydney Morning Herald. Well, now it's Channel 9, I think. Owns it. Mm. And um, when I was a kid, the Sydney Morning Herald was something that came, you could tear it up, you could, you could wrap chips in it. Nowadays,
0: I don't think that a child would think that there, was never, there is such a thing as a, a, a piece of paper called the Sydney Morning Herald. It's just something you look, you find through Google. Mm. So that's one obviously big change. But the second thing is about the new media formats is when you go to those news websites now, the written word is only, I imagine, just for such a small portion of the presentation that's given to the viewer. There's, there's video, there's audio, there's all sorts of things. To me, that's good and bad. One is bad, maybe, because you don't have the actual, I don't know how much the art of being a writer is and it. Necessarily, is if that that's the main feature anymore of a newspaper. But certainly, the good thing is it seems to be open to to younger people because it speaks their language. It's a sort of they could probably start really contributing to that format in ways that older people might not be as brought up in. What what are your thoughts on the way in which the, the postmodern?
1: Yeah. Oh look, I'd agree their with thoughts. you about there being good and bad. Um, that the good side is that you you do. You used to have to go to different media forms to get either the audio or the video as well as the text and now you can get all of it from not only from the Sydney Morning Herald but from the ABC which historically produced radio and television, now produces a lot of stuff online and produces, um, uh, you know, often quite long articles about various topics, you know, which they never used to do. So um, what... The, the bad side of it potentially is that as you're alluding to the, if like the writing, how much attention is paid to the writing. Uh, it's, I think the, the, the speed and the speed and the, and the smaller or lower numbers of staff have had an impact there as in that one of the vital um, layers in the cake has been uh, if not removed, then, then certainly much diminished. And that is what are called sub editors who, who are between you, as the writer or the writing journalist, and the production of the newspaper or of the radio broadcast or whatever, and the public, and they would they would do everything from fix your spelling to um, if if indeed you did misspell something to ask you questions about whether you defame someone to providing some context that you might have missed to just clarifying something or helping ask questions to clarify something that you in the rush, had only partly digested. And and a good sub-editor, and any honest journalist will tell you this, um, as any any honest reporter will tell you this, because journalists are sub-editors as well, that good sub-editors are really important. And that is one of the losses uh, to the point which some news organisations have realised that, and they're starting to rehire some journalists, sorry, some sub-editors, uh, because they are important. and And um, I mean, the writing, I agree, is really important that the actual, um, the experience of reading something that is well written, you know, and we've got some excellent journalists in this country who write extremely well. I just read something this morning from Malcolm Knox, who's a Sydney person who um, who wrote about the state of Australian cricket, what's going on there. I imagine that was in the Sydney Morning Herald as well as in The Age this morning when I read it you know, he's not only a good thinker, but he's a good writer. And so you'll read what he has to write, sorry, read what he has has written because of that. And uh, there are other places where that the writing is prized, like in the quarterly essay or the, you know, those sorts of publications. But um, I I, I certainly out at at the uni where I'm at, we we aim to teach that so that people's writing is clear and um, succinct and accurate, obviously, but also... That does develop a bit of a rhetorical style, so that it will carry readers along.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, second last question: You are a professor in communications at Deakin University. Why should someone come along to study communications in this day and age?
1: Okay. Um, communications broadly, I, I, I think I don't even think I've, I need to make that argument. I mean, if in the sense that if there's one thing about the global pandemic that we've seen is that the ability to communicate clearly and succinctly and and to cut through noise is really prized, um, and and conversely, the you know the ability to obfuscate or avoid questions or whatever is drives people up the wall. So um, I don't think I need to make an argument about about the the teaching people how to communicate well is really important. Uh, But I suspect partly your question is about um, why study journalism today as distinct from, I don't know, public relations or something like that. And my argument would be the same as it's been for many years, which is that I think journalism plays a vital role in a democracy and, we need more of it, not less of it, and particularly when there is a lot of uh, spin and public relations. Which I'm not. I'm not saying there's no place for public relations, but it does. It isn't. It is a kind of a, a, a profession that does get used in some pretty rough and willing ways, and in ways that are counter to um, the good running of a democracy and. Uh, and, and the part of the problem is that there are more public relations practitioners than journalists now in the country. Um, is that right? Yep. Yep. So the, um, but, but see that, the, sorry, what
0: we you? So this is the, your, the fourth state notion is that we, you're talking of journalism yeah. being a, a bastion
1: of the of democracy. Yes, I am. And, um, you know i'm not it, it's by no means a, poor, a perfect bastion. there's you know we could spend another hour talking about its imperfections but um it's it remains important and and the public relations as an industry which um includes a lot more than simply engaging with the media and trying to either spin them one way or spin them the other way um but there are there are um well i'll give you an example in the um i think in the under the Andrews government in Victoria, which is a, which is the state government here in Victoria, uh, the number of people who, who provide communications advice and expertise, I think has doubled in the last four or five years. Uh, there's a lot of them, and I think more than just about any other state. And the same applies actually to the, to the Prime Minister's Office, federal, uh, the federal Prime Minister of Australia, and and uh, the number of communications people working in the Prime Minister's department. Gosh, that's a bit of a worry. Um, yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Um, just before we go,
0: but thank you very much for your time. Sure. What are you working on next or now? What
1: have been working on? Oh, okay. I'm glad you asked that, actually, because I'm... Because um, uh, this has been... I've very much enjoyed the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners, but I'm, I'm working right now with a colleague uh, Patrick Mullins on a book about the ABC uh, which is the title is who Needs the ABC question mark And I'm you know I'm happy to tell you that our answer is um, we all need the ABC and and if you like the, the book is predic or not predicated it was prompted by the idea that the um, under the current government in particular, uh, they would probably, well, well, they have moved a motion at their own party conference a couple of years ago to abolish or if not abolish, then privatise the ABC. And and so the ABC, you know, which is nearly 90 years old as an institution, um, may not reach its centenary if, if the current government um, actually has its way. And so I think we need to start a debate and a discussion about what the value of the ABC is to the broader community.
0: Yeah, you start seeing those bumper stickers again. I I listen to the ABC and I vote.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, So, um, yeah, that's what's what's, uh, in the works at the moment. It should be coming out um, early next year through Scribe Publications. Great. Okay, Matthew. Well, thank you very much for your time. So that was Matthew Rickardson, who has a book
0: published by UNSW Press called upheaval, disrupted lives in journalism with a pretty good cover, actually a typewriter and a laptop sort of merging one into the other. You'll see it in bookstores. Grab a copy. Thank you very much, Matthew, for your time.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you for your time as well, B.
0: No worries. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for listening to the New Books Network.